Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 17th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's turn to the weather forecast first thing. This coming from KCRG. Bitter cold takes a break, but accumulating snow sneaks back in. Some of the warmest temperatures in days will be seen in eastern Iowa today, providing a bit of relief from the brutal cold. Temperatures this morning are hanging around zero degrees, give or take a few degrees on either side. Wind chill values are still below zero, falling into the minus 10 to minus 20 degree range. While this is warmer than most of the last several days, it's still cold enough to be risky if you don't take proper precautions. It's still a good idea to cover up exposed skin this morning and dress in layers to keep warm. Frostbite is still much more likely in these temperatures than a more typical winter morning, so treat it with care. Please take care while driving this morning, too, with the possibility of slick roads still out there. We've seen numerous crashes in the morning hours over the past two days. While temperatures are warmer, they're not quite warm enough yet to allow for chemical road treatments to work very efficiently. If it looks wet, it could be icy. Give yourself some extra time to get where you're going today. Varying amounts of clouds and clearer skies will be with us this morning, with a trend toward cloudier skies throughout the day. By late afternoon into evening, a narrow band of light snow could form between about Interstate 80 and U.S. Highway 20. Depending on how long it persists, it could leave behind a trace to an inch of snow, though most people will miss out on much of the snow at all, and even those that do will wind up on the lower end of that scale. Still, be prepared for slick roads where this occurs. A break from precipitation occurs in the start of Thursday, but a shift to northerly winds means another chilly day. Lows will be in the low single digits, but highs only approach the upper single digits and low teens. Clouds will be fairly common, and snow becomes likelier the later we go into the afternoon on Thursday. Expect light snow to enter our western counties by 1 or 2 o'clock, spreading into the east and reaching the Mississippi River by 4 or 5 o'clock. This means that the Thursday evening commute will likely be affected by falling snow, which will be lightweight and fluffy. Rates could be moderate at times, reducing visibility somewhat. One to three inches of snow accumulation is likely for most of us, with slightly lesser amounts to the north. Due to the lightweight nature of the snow, it could be easily blown around a bit by increasingly strong northwest winds behind a cold front associated with this system. Slick roads are likely while snow is falling and after, potentially affecting the Friday evening commute as well. Plan on a longer trip to get to your destination and use typical winter driving techniques to stay safe. Those same winds will carry in another Arctic air mass, sending temperatures back into the bitterly cold levels. Highs on Friday and Saturday will only be in the single digits above zero at best, with wind chills well below zero once again. 
Dangerously cold wind chills are especially likely on Saturday morning, with air temperatures dipping to minus 15 to minus 20. Be ready to bundle up appropriately once again and consider limiting outdoor time until conditions improve. They will improve fairly rapidly by the end of next weekend, with temperatures on Sunday going from the double digits below zero in the morning to the low 20s for many by the afternoon. This warming trend continues into the following week, with each day featuring highs near or above freezing. Lows at night may also stay near the low 30s, providing a sharp contrast to the cold we've been used to. The same time period also features a chance for showers on several days as more moisture works into the region. A few disturbances will move through the weather pattern, giving us this chance. While flooding of rivers and streams is unlikely, given how dry it's been for so long, we could run into some minor street flooding issues in urban areas where storm drains are blocked or backed up by the heavy snowpack. Fog may also be an issue with so much moisture around. Now, turning to the front page, we see coverage for the Iowa caucus results, and this comes on Wednesday after the caucuses on Monday. The headline is, Trump Wins Caucuses. Crucial victory with historic margin kicks off the GOP campaign. The story was written by Aaron Murphy, and the dateline is Des Moines. We begin with a photograph of former President Donald Trump speaking behind a podium on a stage that has red, white, and blue bunting across the bottom and an American flag at the top and a number of supporters standing around him. Donald Trump's victory in the 2024 Iowa Republican caucuses was huge. It was the biggest Iowa caucus victory that anyone has ever seen. Trump's popularity among Iowa Republicans was on full display Monday night when the former president, who is seeking a return to the White House, won the state party's presidential precinct caucuses by a historic margin, with 100% of the state's 99 counties reported late Monday evening, Trump had carried 98 of them, securing 51% of Iowa Republicans' support. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis won second place with 21%, and Haley finished third with 19%. Trump's victory is far and away the largest ever in the Iowa Republican caucuses, which date to the 1970s. Prior to Monday night, the largest victory margin by a Republican Iowa caucus winner, who was not an incumbent president, was just 12 points, Bob Dole over Pat Robertson in 1988. Trump took the stage at his caucus night rally at around 10 p.m. and thanked Iowa Republican caucus participants, his family, the Iowa public officials who have supported him, and his fellow candidates, DeSantis, Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy. He then turned his remarks to current Democratic President Joe Biden and celebrated his historic victory margin. The Republican Party of Iowa late Monday night said it projected statewide caucus turnout of roughly 100,000. Temperatures across the state reached historic lows for an Iowa caucus night, 
with wind chills in the range of minus 30 degrees. Quote, Iowans braved record low temperatures after a blizzard blanketed their state just days earlier to deliberate with members of their community about the future of our country and participate in true grassroots democracy, unquote. Republican Party of Iowa Chairman Jeff Kaufman said in a statement, quote, I could not be prouder to be an Iowan than I am tonight. Iowans come out en masse, demonstrates our people's resilience and determination, as well as their confidence in the most transparent democratic process in the country, unquote. Trump's victory in Iowa starts the nation's presidential nominating process and propels him onto the New Hampshire, where he leads Haley in polling averages at Real Clear Politics and 538 by roughly 14 percentage points. New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation primary election is January 23rd. Throughout nearly a year of caucus campaigning in Iowa, Trump held a consistent and commanding lead in public polls on the Republican presidential primary. The polls suggested Trump's popularity remained strong here in Iowa, and Monday night's caucuses results confirmed it. Trump finished a close second to Texas U.S. Senator Ted Cruz in the 2016 Iowa Republican caucuses before going on to secure the party's nomination that year. He carried Iowa in both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. After his second-place finish in the 2016 caucuses, Trump questioned the results and encouraged Kaufman to disavow the results in what turned out to be a precursor to Trump's denial of his 2020 presidential re-election loss, which now has him facing legal issues in Georgia. Back in Iowa this time around, Trump's campaign left nothing to chance. This time, the campaign apparatus did a better job of doing the grassroots organizing work, finding and then securing the caucus commitments from supporters that historically has been necessary to fuel a successful Iowa caucus campaign. And when they did, the results spoke for themselves. At Washington High School in southeast Cedar Rapids, Ron and Debbie Smith said they were caucusing for the first time and came out to support Trump. Quote, Everything I dislike about him is why I like him, Ron Smith, a 58-year-old remote contract worker, said. Quote, He makes you feel uncomfortable, but he does the uncomfortable things that need to get done. Everyone else is all talk, unquote. After DeSantis and Haley, Ohio biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy was fourth at just 7.7%. Ramaswamy announced the suspension of his campaign and endorsed Trump on Monday night. DeSantis's campaign cried foul after four national media organizations, the Associated Press, CNN, Fox News, and NBC News, called the caucuses for Trump just a half hour after the caucuses began. National media organizations have elections results reporting staff that help them project winners before official results are reported. Quote, it's absolutely outrageous that the media would participate in election interference, 
by calling the race before tens of thousands of Iowans even had a chance to vote. The media is in the tank for Trump, and this is the most egregious example yet, DeSantis campaign communications director Andrew Romeo said in a statement. Iowa Democratic Party chairwoman Rita Hart said in a statement that the former president's victory in Iowa shows what will be at stake in the 2024 presidential election. Quote, Donald Trump and the entire Republican field spent every minute leading up to the caucus, twisting themselves in knots to stake out the most extreme positions this country has ever seen, Hart said in a statement, criticizing Trump on issues like abortion, Social Security, and Medicare, public safety, and tax policy. Now, the second story on the front page is about Ron DeSantis, who finished second. The title is, DeSantis Finishes Second in Iowa Republican Caucuses. Story written by Caleb McCullough and Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. And we begin with a photograph of Governor Ron DeSantis shaking hands with supporters. And the caption says, Republican presidential candidate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, greet supporters during a caucus night party on Monday in West Des Moines. The dateline is West Des Moines. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished a distant second in the Iowa Republican caucuses, narrowly edging out former U.M. Ambassador Nikki Haley in a tight race for second place. With 100% of the votes in, DeSantis pulled in about 21% of the vote, putting Haley in a close third with about 19% support. Both candidates celebrated the results as a boost to their campaigns, even as they trailed far behind former President Donald Trump, who has gathered more than half of reported results. Quote, They threw everything but the kitchen sink at us, DeSantis told a raucous crowd of supporters gathered at his watch party at a West Des Moines hotel. Quote, they spent almost $50 million attacking us. The media was against us. They were writing our obituary months ago. They even called the election before people even got a chance to vote, unquote. The Florida governor's campaign cried foul Monday after national media outlets predicted Trump the winner shortly after the caucuses started. The Associated Press and other major news outlets such as CNN, Fox News, and NBC News called the race for Trump barely 30 minutes after the caucuses began at 7 p.m. Only a handful of precincts had race results reported by that point. The DeSantis campaign claimed the media was engaging in, quote, election interference, since not all the caucuses had finished. Quote, but I can tell you, because of your support, in spite of all of that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa, DeSantis exclaimed. Quote, we represent a chance to reverse the madness that we've seen in this country, to reverse the decline of this country, and to give this country a new birth of freedom and a restoration, DeSantis continued. DeSantis noted his campaign has an uphill climb. Quote, we have a lot of work to do, he told supporters at his watch party. 
But I can tell you this as the next president of the United States, I am going to get the job done for this country. I am not going to make any excuses, and I guarantee you this, I will not let you down, unquote. Haley cast her third-place finish as a victory, saying she rose from polling in the single digits to nearly taking second place. She pointed to the later contests and said she was well-positioned to take on Trump. Quote, I can safely say tonight Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race, she told supporters in West Des Moines. Haley, who spent the weeks leading up to Iowa attacking DeSantis, quickly set her sights on Trump Monday night. She warned of the prospects of a Trump-Biden rematch and said Americans want to see the country taken in a different direction. Quote, Trump and Biden are both about 80 years old, she said. Trump and Biden both put our country trillions of dollars deeper in debt, and our kids will never forgive them for it. DeSantis bet on ground organizing for the second place finished. DeSantis marshaled a robust network of precinct captains and canvassers to try to boost the Florida governor to second place past Haley. Never back down, a DeSantis-aligned super PAC, supporting but not directly affiliated with his campaign, led the bulk of Iowa organizing for the Florida governor. PAC officials said they recruited more than 1,600 precinct captains spanning nearly every caucus site in the state. Volunteers organized rides to caucus sites, door-knocked in sub-zero temperatures, and readied to shovel driveways if needed to help get supporters out. DeSantis, though, could not overcome a commanding lead by the former President Donald Trump to pull off a caucus night upset. Once widely viewed as the favorite to challenge Trump, DeSantis struggled to narrow the gap with the Republican presidential frontrunner despite earning endorsements from top state Republicans, including Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and Iowa Christian Evangelical leader Bob Vanderplatz. DeSantis also faced a mounting challenge from Haley, who pulled ahead of DeSantis in polling just days before Monday's high-stakes Iowa GOP caucuses that could help determine whether either candidate has a viable spot at upending Trump's path to the nomination, Haley's Iowa momentum. Haley, who came out of Iowa only two points behind DeSantis, bolstered her support with national debate performances, a flood of anti-DeSantis advertising money from a super PAC, and the endorsement and organizing power from the influential Koch Brothers Network, Americans for Prosperity. Based on reported results, Haley gathered more support than DeSantis in urban and suburban areas like Scott, Blackhawk, and Story Counties, catering to moderates and independents who were not convinced by the far-right posturing of both Trump and DeSantis. Haley managed to beat Trump in Johnson County by only one vote, taking in 1,271 to Trump's 1,270 and preventing the former president from winning all 99 Iowa counties. Retired AT&T technician Dave Anderson, sporting a button for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, describes himself as your 
run-of-the-mill, small government, low-taxes Republican, but not a MAGA Republican, unquote. Like the majority of his fellow caucus-goers at Precinct 19 in northwest Cedar Rapids, he chose Haley for her civility and lack of negativity in the campaign cycle, which was a priority for the Cedar Rapids resident. He liked other candidates, like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who have since dropped out. He voted Republican until 2016. He was unswayed by arguments for Governor Ron DeSantis's acumen in fiscal policy or former President Donald Trump's performance in economic issues, citing a significant drop in his retirement funds under the Trump administration and a substantial boost in them under Biden's administration. If DeSantis or Trump are the GOP nominee in the election this November, he said he will vote for President Joe Biden. DeSantis all in on Iowa. The stakes were high for DeSantis, who is projected to do poorly in the New Hampshire primary, which is next up on the calendar. DeSantis was polling in a distant third in the Granite State, with 5.8% support, according to 538's average of recent polls. Trump has about 40% of support among likely New Hampshire voters, while Haley follows at 30%. DeSantis pinned his hopes for the Republican presidential nomination on Iowa, hoping a strong ground game and support from the state's popular Republican governor and an influential Iowa Christian evangelical leader can make up for lackluster polling and give him a boost through the rest of the primary race. DeSantis bet on retail campaigning, visiting all of Iowa's 99 counties, and intense ground organizing to plant the seeds for success in the Iowa caucuses. But his campaign became beset by infighting and dysfunction, and left much of the tricky task of organizing support for him to the pro-DeSantis-aligned, never-back-down, super PAC, multiple senior officials of, of which resigned or were fired following disputes over the group's attack ads against primary rival Nikki Haley and personnel moves. Reynolds, putting her political capital on the line, endorsed DeSantis in November after initially saying she would remain neutral in the Iowa GOP caucuses. Trump criticized Reynolds for being disloyal taking credit for her election in 2018 and claiming his endorsement for her for governor, quote, saved her campaign. Reynolds said she was proud of her endorsement, saying DeSantis' record as governor of Florida, such as pushing against COVID restrictions and mandates, expanding school choice options for parents, and restricting teaching of topics related to gender and sexuality, in public schools, quote, is undeniable. Quote, this is the man that can step in on day one and reverse the madness that we see happening from the Biden administration, Reynolds told the crowd in West Des Moines. Quote, he has the record. He has the resolve. He is a bold, principled leader, unquote. She assured DeSantis is in it for the long haul, unquote. Quote, we've got one of two tickets out of Iowa. Reynolds exclaimed, we're sending him to New Hampshire. 
We're sending him to South Carolina. Watch out, America. Ron DeSantis is not done. Unquote. Next, jury to decide penalty for Trump's defamation. Separate panel ruled he sexually abused columnist in New York. This story from the Associated Press. Dateline, New York. Donald Trump shook his head in disgust Tuesday as the judge in his New York defamation trial told prospective jurors that another jury already decided that the former president sexually abused columnist E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s. Fresh from a political win Monday in the Iowa caucuses, the Republican presidential frontrunner detoured to a Manhattan courtroom for what amounts to the penalty phase of a civil defamation lawsuit stemming from Carroll's claims he sexually attacked her in a department store dressing room. Nine jurors were selected for the trial, which Judge Louis A. Kaplan said is likely to last three to five days. Kaplan told prospective jurors the trial beginning Tuesday would focus only on how much money, if any, Trump must pay Carol for comments he made about her while president in 2019. For purposes of the new trial, it already was determined that Trump, quote, did sexually assault Ms. Carroll, Kaplan said. Trump lawyer Alina Haba told the judge Trump plans to testify. Kaplan previously rejected Trump's request to delay the trial a week. Now we have an update. Missing Grundy Center man found safe. Story written by Jeff Reinerts and begins with a photograph of Lance Noble. Dateline Grundy Center. Authorities said Tuesday that Lance Noble was found safe. The earlier report was as follows. Authorities were seeking the public's help in locating a Grundy Center man who had been missing for more than a week. Lance Noble, age unavailable, was last heard from on January 9th, according to the Grundy Center Police Department. Police said he has medical concerns and may be confused about his whereabouts. He drives a silver 2011 Buick LaCrosse with Iowa license plate. The Courier article states anyone with information is asked to call Grundy County Dispatch at this number, and as of this reading, he has been found safe. Board of Regents President resigns from his role and will leave position in April. Story written by Angela Sturm McLaughlin, Dateline Des Moines. The Iowa Board of Regents needs a new president, as Mike Richards has stepped down from his role effective immediately. Richards has served on the board, which oversees Iowa's three state universities, since 2016. He was appointed by Governor Kim Reynolds' predecessor, Governor Terry Branstad. He was elected president by the board in 2017. According to a news release, Richards will remain on the board until April 30th, when he plans to resign. Board member and President Pro Tem Sherry Bates will take over the president position in an interim role until a new leader is elected at a future board meeting. Quote, Serving as a member of the board has been a true honor and privilege. 
Richard said in the news release. I want to publicly thank Governor Kim Reynolds and Governor Branstad, who gave me the opportunity to serve in this important role. I also want to thank all the regents that I have served with. Quote, I am extremely proud of all that we have accomplished over the past seven years, he said. Our public universities are among the finest in the nation, and I have enjoyed the collaborative relationship to find ways to continue to improve. I am making this announcement now to allow for a smooth transition in leadership and to hopefully give Governor Reynolds ample time to find and name my replacement, unquote. Regents spokesperson Josh Lehman said in an email that Richard wishes to spend more time with friends and family. He is announcing his resignation at this time to give more time to search for his replacement. Zuri's Taco Bar to bring that Latin American feel to former Cedar Falls OP on College Hill. Story written by Andy Malone. Cedar Falls. There's a new restaurant moving into a formerly iconic spot on College Hill. But the new owners see the future destination giving off the vibes not of an Iowa college town, but countries like Guatemala, Colombia, and Peru. They say customers will feel, metaphorically, like they took a flight to Latin America because of the food, drinks, decorations, people, and ambiance they'll experience. The place will captivate those who walk inside to the point where they'll lose track of time. Patrons may think they'll only spend a half hour there for lunch and find themselves there for hours. Zuri's Taco Bar plans to be open by Valentine's Day at 2214 College Street, and people should expect it, quote, not to be another a Mexican taco bar and restaurant. Itsuri Aragastui of Cedar Falls is working to open the Latin American restaurant inside a space that's been empty for more than two years, but was well known previously by the University of Northern Iowa faithful and greater community for more than 50 years before that. The Mexico native is leasing the former home of the other place that became the first in a series of several op pizza restaurants and bars in Iowa and Kansas. Opened since 1970, the OP closed December 1, 2021, because ownership said the business wasn't sustainable anymore. Less than a year later, a new Cedar Falls location opened on Main Street. Aristigüe has lived in Cedar Valley for close to 12 years and has grown to love the community, cherish her friendships and the people she has met. She had accumulated about seven years of food industry experience before last year acquiring a food truck she named Zuri's Cuisine and Tacos. Often it was parked in the Banny's Liquor and Vape Shop parking lot at the bottom of the hill. Quote, I've always wanted to have my own restaurant, said Arigastoi. It's like something inside my heart, you know? I can't explain why. Everybody has their art or career. Quote, I chose this. I like making people happy. It's like my laboratory. It's my art. And this is part of something that will make me happy. If I cook something 
but I don't have somebody I can share it with, I say, why do I cook? She sold the truck in the fall to embark upon a larger opportunity she discovered was for lease. She is now on a mission to make people happy through her restaurant, a place where you can rest, be pampered, and feel comfortable, exactly like she does when cooking for family and friends at home. She will lease the place capable of hosting an estimated 80 people. The building is owned by CV Commercial, a venture of real estate mogul Brent Dahlstrom. He purchased the building this summer for $340,000 from the Stedman family, the founders of the OP, according to the property records. In recent months, College Hill has seen some changes in building occupants, including next-gen nutrition at 2211 College Street, formerly Dior's Slushy and Bar, and Tales Untold Tattoos at 2215 College Street, Suite B, formerly Balance Hot Yoga Studio, and notably this summer, Cooper's Tap Room opened inside the old Hydrant Firehouse Grill at 2002 College Street. Quote, I have fallen in love with College Hill. It's very fun. I feel the energy of the college kids, and they're very happy always, she said. I'm almost 40, but I can go back in time, and I can feel like I'm in my 20s. She'll offer specialty tacos, alcoholic drinks, music, and friendly service inside the restaurant with Latin American culture on full display, a full bar, and lots of tables. Tacos are just the start of a menu that includes meat dishes like corapolo with chicken, chorizo and cheese sauce, and guesa barilla with a big flour tortilla of melted cheese and barilla. The food options are extensive, ranging from eggs and pancakes to vegetarian, gluten-free, dessert options, and even American food and the service will remind people of Latin America, where she says everyone and anyone are welcomed. Arist Degree has assembled a beautiful team, including two local business partners, Jennifer Hernandez and Rafael de Gado, and has the strength of her family, helping her navigate the business landscape and prepare for opening. Quote, Zuri has always been a really happy person to be around very smart and very motivated, to follow her dreams, said Carrie McKinney, who's crafting artwork for the business. Quote, I'm so happy for her, as opening a restaurant that embodies her and her culture has been something she talked about for years. I'm proud of her willingness and determination to do what it takes to start this new life journey. One may recognize her as that friendly, cheery waitress you have run into at a local establishment. She is a little shy, but is determined and learning every day about what it takes to run a business. Quote, being an entrepreneur is more difficult because I'm a small entrepreneur. I'm not a rich person, not a person with big resources or Carlos O'Kelly's. In this journey, I learned a lot of different things. I keep learning every day, she said. Aristegui, plans to hire 10 to 15 employees, ranging from waiters and waitresses to bartenders and cooks. Hours 
are expected to be 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Sunday to Wednesday and 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. on Thursday to Saturday. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 17th on IRIS, I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this announcement. If you're anxious about retirement, if you can't stop worrying about your aging parents' health, if you're depressed because you feel like you're losing everyone you love, turn to Your Life Iowa. Anxiety and depression are real illnesses. Let us connect you to someone who can help, because mental health is health. Get the help you need to start feeling better at yourlifeiowa.org. We're a free helpline where you can talk, text, or chat 24-7. Brought to you by Iowa HHS. Now let's turn to the opinion page. Our first editorial comes to us from the New York Times, written by Molly Dickens and Lucy Hunter, What the Child Care Crisis Does to Parents. On a Saturday morning last May, Julia Skadev, a mother of two-year-old and four-year-old, woke up to an email from her children's preschool, the school which her children adored and had been in operation for over 50 years, announced that it would be closing in a month. In the following days, she and her husband scrambled to find an alternative that was a reasonable driving distance from their home. Most of the places they reached out to had long waiting lists. Some said their waiting lists were full. Some never even called them back. Quote, it was so stressful, reflected Miss Satchdev. There was this suffocating anxiety that ruled my day. I couldn't concentrate on other things. It kept me up at night, unquote. The Satchdev's experience is far from unique. For years, American parents, regardless of family roles, paid work status, geography, or income, have struggled to find and maintain stable child care. Research shows that roughly half of Americans live in child care deserts, meaning that they have limited or no access to care. In September, federal relief funding put in place to support more than 220,000 child care programs during the pandemic abruptly expired. This steep drop-off in investment, which has been termed a child care cliff, is projected to lead to the closing of thousands of preschools and child care centers around the country. Some families are already feeling the impact, and many more may soon find themselves in situations like the Satchdevs's. The situation has been getting steadily worse for years, and we are now reaching a pivotal moment as thousands of American families face the daunting prospect of losing their child care, Congress has the opportunity to take immediate action to help alleviate their burden. We know inadequate child care is an economic issue, costing states, families, and businesses billions of dollars every year. We know it's a gender issue that contributes to a widening pay gap. We know it's a policy issue made worse by the absences of federal pre-K program and a federal paid leave policy. 
But here's another crucial consideration worth pushing for. Our country's inadequate child care system is also a health care issue. For years, parents, particularly mothers, have been shouldering the burden of child care shortage, assuming additional caretaking responsibilities, and shelling out untenable amounts of money to cover the increasing costs of outside care. And we worry that as we begin to see the fallout from this latest wave of disruption, the thin lifelines holding families together and safeguarding the well-being of parents may snap. It is well documented that stress wreaks havoc on our health. Decades of research have linked chronic stress to increased long-term risks for heart disease, diabetes, and autoimmune disorders. Stress is also a key component underlying the onset and maintenance of mental illness. Research from the pandemic, when families across the world suddenly lost access to child care, continues to suggest links between the additional load of caregiving responsibility and mental health disorders like anxiety and depression, especially for mothers. And inadequate child care intensifies other stressors affecting health as well. Most obvious, of course, is financial stress. The cost of child care in this country is already astronomical. Currently, the average price of care for two children for a year is higher than the average annual mortgage. For many American parents, the cost of child care is crushing and contributes to financial instability and hardship. Missed or interrupted work because of inadequate child care can also add to financial stress. The task of finding care can also increase parents' mental labor load, which can erode psychological health, particularly for mothers. Dwindling child care options mean that parents may have to lurk harder and travel farther from home to find care, or they may have to rely on an inconsistent patchwork of babysitters and family members to find coverage. And when one child care center closes or one babysitter cancels, the burden of finding an alternative falls to the parents. That process can be arduous. When polled, over half of Americans who paid for care said it would take them at least one month to find a comparable, affordable child care alternative if their current program closed. Unpredictability itself is a source of stress. Even when parents manage to secure care for their children, it can be unreliable, and they never know when it might go away. Child care precarity, the state of insecure and unreliable child care, has been linked to negative mental health outcomes for mothers for at least six years afterwards. For many families, stressors don't disappear the moment they secure care. Take the Satch Devas case again. In the end, they found another preschool for their children, but it didn't have the same learning environment as their previous school, and they didn't know the community there. Without the luxury of being able to carefully consider which school would be the best fit, they made their choice, at least in part, out of necessity. Quote, we just went with a place that had an available spot, explained Ms. Satsdev, and then we had more anxiety for months 
over whether it was the best place for our kid, unquote. But while precarity can have negative health effects, the opposite is also true. Research has shown that the perception of a stable child care access decreases the risk of maternal depression, underscoring why researchers think lack of child care should be considered a social determinant of health. Because of unsustainable funding, many child care centers have struggled to maintain full staffs. Shoestring budgets can also mean fewer high-quality educational programs and less one-on-one attention for children. And while most child care centers are safe places, parental stress around safety may have heightened in recent months because of increased media coverage around child care centers that expose children to terrifying risks. Quote, the most stressful thing now is finding someone who can take my son, meet his needs, and be the right price, said Kristen Spencer, whose school-age son has special needs. Quote, there are a couple of programs that will take him, but we can't afford them, unquote. Ms. Spencer explained, quote, I've switched jobs to alleviate our child care issues. We depend a lot on my parents, but they're aging. It's cost versus this versus that. It comes to a point where we have to figure a lot out for ourselves. It is really stressful, unquote. Worse the parents are likely to experience the worst impacts of the child care cliff are people of color and low-wage workers who are already at the highest risk for stress-related illness. Quote, These are communities and individuals that don't have the luxury to say, I guess I'm going to have to stay home, or I guess I'm going to have to get a nanny, said Karen Sheffield Abdullah, who studies health equity stress, and anxiety at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Quote, when there is no alternative or plan B, it can feel hopeless, unquote. We also expect that the American workforce at large will begin to see not only increased absenteeism related to child-caring responsibilities, but also mental health issues and burnout related to child-care gaps, a consequence well-documented for farm families, healthcare workers, and other professions. Our country still lacks a comprehensive infrastructure to address the growing mental health crisis and plans to dramatically expand access to mental health care in America will require a significant investment of time and money. The federal government has an opportunity to significantly alleviate those two crises with one tranche of funding, urgently, as Congress comes up against a deadline for passing a new spending bill this week, we cannot afford any cuts to funding that will support child care development and early childhood education in the current appropriations bill. Additionally, Congress must act on the President's request for $16 billion dollars in supplemental emergency child care funding. These funds would sustain child care programs on the verge of closing so that American families across the country have the stable care options they need. The funding is a critical bandage on an open wound, 
but it is not a long-term fix. That $16 billion would be a bridge that buys time to find a solution, said Elliot Haspel, a child and family policy expert at Capita, a family policy group. Quote, Child care needs permanent federal investment. We need to shift our mindset away from child care as an individual responsibility when it actually has a collective benefit. Strong families are the cornerstone of strong communities, strong cities, a strong nation. And if you care about strong families, you need to care about child care and long-term solutions, unquote. A cornerstone of strong families is mental and physical health. Decreasing the stress load on parents will not only improve their long-term health, but will also improve the health of their children. We have an opportunity to recognize that social infrastructure is a critical aspect of mental health. We have an opportunity to alleviate a key source of stress on families and pave the way for more Americans to live healthier lives. This goal should be a priority for us as a country. It is time to acknowledge that child care is directly tied to health. It is time to appreciate that stable, affordable, accessible, high-quality child care is a preventive medicine for decreasing long-term health risks. It is time to value care workers and early childhood educators for the crucial services they provide. It is time to view immediate federal investment in child care as a key part of the solution to address the growing mental health crisis. It's time to fight for a permanent federal investment in child care as a critical expenditure with an exponential effect on the health of Americans for generations to come. It is time to accept that child care is health. And a note about the author, Molly Dickens is a psychologist who studies stress and the founder of Maternal Stress Project. Lucy Hutner is a reproductive psychiatrist and a co-founder of Phoebe, a mental health platform for parents. Now we have something from Randy Evans and his column, Stray Thoughts. It's time to look for ways to reduce tragic toll of guns. Like many Iowans, my thoughts have been rather chaotic since the horrible news from Perry High School last week. The events were so sad and senseless. A 17-year-old student was dead, having shot himself. An 11-year-old sixth grader, known for his big smile and cheerful outlook, was dead from three gunshot wounds. Seven other students and school employees, including the high school principal, were wounded by the teenager. Americans are numb to the number and frequency of school shootings and other mass killings. Our leaders appear to be paralyzed. Yes, they express their sadness and concern, but thoughts and prayers are not enough. Also inadequate was the message Donald Trump had for Iowans when he expressed his concern about the Perry tragedy. Quote, it's just horrible, he said, but we have to get over it. We have to move forward, unquote. Beyond the morning seen across Iowa, there is too little appetite for discussion about what our government intends to do 
to reduce the frequency of these mass shootings. It is too easy to think of victims only in terms of those who are killed or wounded in these tragedies, but I found myself thinking back to the 12-year-old son of a friend of mine, whose school was one of 30 in Iowa, hit on one morning last March by a series of reports of an active shooter in local schools. Administrators quickly put their emergency plans into operation, and police and paramedics rushed to the schools. All of these reports turned out to be fake, and no one was killed or injured. The unknown caller's intent was to create chaos for first responders and school officials, but the fear and anxiety among students and staff was real. My friend's son was one of the bigger, stronger kids in his classroom. His job that morning was to help barricade the classroom doors, but he confessed to his mother afterward that he was too shook by the frightening events to carry out his task. Quote, next time, I'll do it even if I'm crying, he told her. Let that sink in. A 12-year-old boy feels like he let down his classmates and his teacher, and he promises to be more helpful the next time there's an active shooter report. The legislature begins its 2024 session this week. Iowans should watch to see whether Governor Kim Reynolds and Republicans, who hold solid majorities in the House and Senate, move beyond thoughts and prayers and debate increasing mental health services in our state, something nearly everyone agrees is an important step to reduce the frequency of gun violence. Iowans should also watch to see whether the Reynolds administration and lawmakers begin any meaningful study of gun deaths in Iowa. Such a study could provide important insight to guide government's response to this program, if our leaders want to move beyond thoughts and prayers. There is eye-opening information about gun deaths in a report last year by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Government officials in Iowa should mine this report and similar research for answers to questions about why. Questions like, why did Alabama, a state with a population of 5 million people, lose 1,315 people to gun deaths in 2021. The rate comes out to 26.4 firearm deaths per 100,000 people. In contrast, why did New York, a state four times larger with 20 million people, have 1,078 gun deaths in 2021? The rate comes out to 5.4 gun deaths per 100,000 people. Why was Alabama's rate of gun deaths the fourth highest among the 50 states, while New York's rate was the fourth lowest. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's data shows Iowa with 364 gun deaths in 2021, tying for the 11th lowest rate among the states. Iowa's gun death rate was 11.2 per 100,000 people. The Alabama Reflector, a nonprofit news website, reported on the CDC's statistics last year and posed an all-important question. Why did a small state rank so high for gun violence? The reflector said New York, in contrast with Alabama, has an age limit for firearms purchases 
and has stronger background check and gun permit laws. Research specialists believe poverty and a lack of social programs are two other factors. None of this provides definitive answers as to the why question nagging everyone after tragedies like the one in Perry. But we will never find a way to chip away at the heartbreaking toll of gun deaths if our government leaders' response does not go beyond thoughts and prayers. What do we have to lose by bringing together the best minds to look for middle ground steps forward? And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 17th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can listen to a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 